Monday, January 3rd, 2021, the first episode of the new year of LA Podcast. We're all January 4th. here on January 4th. That's what I said. Hayes Davenport, <laughs> Alyssa Walker, and Scott Frazier. Scott is ill, but he brought what's left of himself to do the show. I, we were just talking about how we we never take you know no, no days, days off. off. We d- we don't we don't rest from podcasting. So I had to live up to that. Uh, how was everyone's week? Mine was full of M eighty explosions yeah. and uh, ambulance sirens, and my dogs were not happy about it. And one of them pooped mm-hmm. on the floor in mm-hmm. in protest. Was it the this year protests. or last year? Was it the omen? Oh, it was, it was yeah, this year. Not a- Starting off the new year, right? I liked how the fireworks were very strategic this time. It wasn't like a constant fireworks all night. It all went down at midnight where I was. Yeah. Like all, everyone used everything they had, their entire firework reserve at once. Right. Because there's nothing left to celebrate. Absolutely nothing. mm -hmm. It was like the, the thing where it's like if you get. Three billion people on one side of the planet to jump at once. <laughs> sort of feel that, like that. that was the firework deployment strategy. Um, I guess we should talk about the elephant in the room. We do want to apologize for the party at the LA podcast drip crib. It was not <laughs> supposed to be as big of an event as it ended up being. You probably saw pictures and video of it. I mean, this is like the the influencer parties in LA. This has become national news. Yeah. LA podcast, pardon my drip, twenty twenty one went off without a hitch. I want to say I didn't get sick at the okay, event. Good. It's totally unrelated. <laughs> uh, there was uh, talk about Alyssa. What's going on with all these uh, these house parties? Well, I don't know who a single one of these people are. I didn't I'm either. Sorry it if was that makes really... me sound old, but yes. I, for all I know, it's just a bunch of people who are just filming themselves and posting it to the internet. But I guess it's some people are have been watching and judging. Yeah. And all these threads that are like, look who was at this party. Huck user. And like <laughs> Coffee Jones. It's like, who are these people? What? They what all have 10 million followers on? on TikTok. Yeah, I, I mean, apparently there were so many parties that like, people flew in to LA for these and we'll Mm. talk about in a moment how that could technically even be possible as you're supposed to quarantine for 14 days when you land. So I heard, so I was told, but, and then there was some enforcement and the enforcement was brought about because only because I think our, our law enforcement Officials are finally realizing that they themselves are getting sick from this mm-hmm. and they have not, uh, like large numbers of their forces out. So they should probably do some start doing something about it because it's starting to affect their ability to police the, the population. Yeah. If you went on Eventbrite last week, I mean, anytime in the last couple of weeks, if you even just Google Eventbrite, New Year's Eve party in Los Angeles, you get a lot of hits. I think one of the things we've talked about in the past maybe six to eight weeks or something like that is that services like 
uh, in particular, Airbnb have been saying that they're coming down really hard on the so-called party houses. This is this is something that city council has brought up a lot as well. Airbnb has removed a lot of mansions, big spots in the Hollywood Hills that have become locations for these illegal gatherings to take place. They've pulled them down from the platform. Eventbrite has gone a different way, which is that they're they're basically crowdsourcing enforcement of of their own policies, and so you could easily find uh, a lot of different events that were like, you know, come through New Year's Eve. There's going to be a huge rave location. You know, it's just like warehouse parties basically in downtown. A lot of them in downtown LA, and a lot of these businesses in the area are not currently operating or are or have a lot more vacancy than they normally do so they they are turning it over to these underground really like speakeasy-esque parties and yeah there was some enforcement like Alyssa was was talking about LAPD was and and also the sheriff's department were posting videos of like every place that they rolled up on just kind of like the it was kind of like the cops model of policing of like <laughs> bad it. boys what you gonna do <laughs> like yeah no they were like just like rolling up with their video cameras on and they're like we're going to catch you if you party this new year's and meanwhile over in um in beverly hills one of the the hottest parties of the year which had been foiled by the beverly hills police department not because of well it was La Scala, after we talked last week, they did issue an apology saying they didn't really mean to write the invitation that said inside. It was supposed to say outside, which I should mention is also not permitted under the current Mm -hmm. guidelines. And so it was just somebody being funny with the invitation, I guess, that just wrote the wrong word for levity uh, is what the apology said. And then the apology went on to say, also blame the the city of Beverly Hills for going and talking to the press about that before they came and talked to them about it, which I guess they also, they said that they had talked to them about that, which is another interesting thing. But the day of of New Year's Eve, these signs went up all around La Scala. You know, this is like a a fancy street with a lot of shoppers, you know, shopping on New Year's Eve with their, you know, Fendi bags or whatever going up and down the street. And these signs go up that say, recall Gavin Newsom and a bunch of people not wearing masks out front of the restaurant who I thought was going to turn it into a protest space, perhaps, and just have have the party no matter what. But it turns out the police in Beverly Hills did shut that down, not really because of anything that people were doing, but because the signs were not permitted, which is a surefire way to get your party closed (laughs) if you're in Beverly Hills. But again, the police stepping up. Way to go, Beverly Hills Police Department. We have to commend you for doing this, this really hard work this week. You know, the, the the thing that I think gets me is well, so it's it's like there are there are several different strains, it seems like, of the underground party <laughs> culture. Like mm-hmm. you've got the Beverly Hills La Scala thing, you've got vibe together and um the underground like rave promoters or whatever that there there's there's a difference there between the um like the parties for for like rich people who are either right of center or whatever like i don't know the whatever the recall gavin newsom 
movement ideologically is, who knows? Um, but there's that. And then there's like the influencers who their entire income flow is based on being able to publicly like have a good time. And like, I, I guess we've just seen over the course of this past year that if they are not legally allowed to do that, they will just do it anyway. And it doesn't really matter what the human consequences of that are. And they get rewarded either way because yeah. all of these entities are chasing clout. You're forgetting uh-huh. a third group, which is Christian guitar rockers. <laughs> and, and Sean Fuked, is that how you say it? Foiked? This guy no with crimped hair. What is it? Sean Fucked. Sean Fuck. I'm just pronouncing it how it's as I look. <laughs> Sean uh, went up. to Skid Row, went to Echo Park this week with some of his followers and held these like little circle, stand in a circle and play guitar concerts for Jesus Christ. They went up to Valencia and did it. This like whole barnstorming tour. All like this is like the really tough situation that the city and like local and state governments and everyone is in now that these people just want attention la scala works for them either they got shut down i'm sure their takeout business is thriving oh because of this of course yeah. so many people said they were going to eat there because of that yeah <laughs> uh so, so many people said that they were going to spite Alyssa yeah. personally by getting <laughs> all the her replies that said like it was a joke. You didn't understand it was a joke, and also COVID is not real, and you, you should be allowed to do this. <laughs> <laughs> serious. But it was a joke, love, and I'm still going there. I love using Alyssa Alyssa's liberal tears <laughs> as my salad dressing. <laughs> But, like, same for the hype houses. They get followers. Even if there were, yeah. like, mass arrests, yeah. which there were at some of these places, that's good for them. Yeah. It's attention. Yeah, it's, it is. it is, And it's, like, uh, there, there was one of these party houses that when Mayor Garcetti earlier in the pandemic announced that DWP and LAPD were going to start working together mm-hmm. to shut down utilities to houses like this. It's, like, they, they do that. They do that at one of these hype houses, and then it's it's kind of the influencers get to be like the bad kid in high school who like gets sent to the principal's office or whatever. But for them, it's it's a yeah, win. Exactly, it's definitely an unqualified. And we don't win. want a situation where LAPD is going around like arrest with discretion over being able to arrest anyone who gathers in the groups above a certain size. Like I don't. I mean, right. I don't think anyone wants. I mean, that's where you really get to the cognitive dissonance of the people in Alyssa's mentions, or like you're a narc for reporting this to, for bringing this to the attention of the police department. Who don't get us wrong, we love, <laughs> and they should right. be allowed total discretion over these issues, but not, but not this. We love, we love our ignorant blue yeah, lives. Yeah, that was the um, people who were broadcasting out in front of La Scala that day, and and it was like in the same. In the same phrase, you were the Gestapo, the Mafia, <laughs> also Nazis. I can't, you know, there was like all these different groups calling the Beverly Hills Police Department, I guess that, all in one, you know, breath of <laughs> of speech. Uh, <laughs> Beverly Hills, a, uh, a city with a council member, John Mirish, who... F- frequently goes online to say that the state of California is 
Stalinist and also that housing needs to be decommodified. <laughs> yeah. So cognitive dissonance thrives in 90210. But yeah, I mean, like, I, I, there are people who, who think that arresting is the appropriate approach here. I mean, none of none of us feel that way, but it's it is it is worth noting at least that there there are people who who every day are saying like the the response needs to be LAPD arresting people and throwing them yeah. into jails, which we're now having to. There was a story this week about uh, vaccines being rolled out insufficiently in California's prison system where COVID has just basically run run rampant. So it's it's important to note that that's, that's not yeah. a solution. It's not it's not a solution to just drag people off to jail for for violating any of these COVID mandates. But but nonetheless, we're seeing how the existing enforcement regime has failed on a daily basis. Like when you're the center of the pandemic like LA is, and yet we're still seeing the types of parties that we were, were seeing on New Year's Eve here. It's a sign that something is has gone very wrong. So let's talk about what's happening with the pandemic and sort of some things that we could do here that other places have done. The new strain is here, uh, or specifically it's around San Diego. They found a case and around Big Bear. The mm-hmm. mayor has been saying for weeks that the new strain, since the new strain was discovered, that he thinks that it has been driving right. the spread. I'm not really convinced of that. Maybe I'm, I don't have all the data, but it seems like when they've tested for it, they've, it's, it's, I guess it's harder to test for, but they've done dozens of tests trying to uh, detect this strain in the new cases, and it hasn't been showing up with that much regularity, which you would think if it were driving cases mm-hmm. it would show up a lot maybe even like more than half the time but something is certainly driving cases we are seeing new peaks we saw 20,400 cases in one day i believe that is the new record if you don't count the the backlog days that was on new year's mm-hmm. day we also saw announcements of 200 plus deaths in one day multiple times that was yeah to some extent, the consequence of a backlog and a couple days where they reported basically no deaths. But even if you spread it out over a few days, the numbers of uh, deaths are still extremely high, basically the highest point in the pandemic on average. We are now in the period where uh, LA Times was reporting this this week as of New Year's Day. Like you mentioned, we, we had one of our, our new highs that day. We're entering the period of the the post-Christmas surge, the the thing that Dr. Ferrer, uh, head of, of County Public Health, has been warning about for what feels like forever at this point is that we are at risk of seeing a surge on top of a surge. Uh, and and it, it is, I guess it remains to be seen how, how serious that becomes. But we are in a very dangerous position right now with already, I think, hospital staff throughout the county being significantly overworked, traumatized by everything that's going on, and not there's there's not an end in sight. I guess at this point, that this condition in our hospitals is expected to continue for for several weeks. Yeah, the one, uh, if you could call it positive, the one piece of okay news is that hospitalizations have not been increasing at the rate that you would expect. Mm-hmm based on the spikes in cases that we've now been seeing for a month, basically. 
Yep. And we were texting about this. I'm not sure what the reason for it is. Like, we had a drop in hospitalizations yesterday, which you would never expect based on just how many new cases mm-hmm. have been coming in for so long. Uh, the explanations that I can think of are I do think younger people are driving the new cases, which means that they are less likely to be hospitalized. Obviously, the young people end up infecting their family members who end up going to the hospital. It leads to hospitalizations, but not as many if it's mostly young people getting the new cases. I think also a a huge amount of people in the hospital are dying, which lowers the net number of people in the hospital. And also, they might be turning more people away. You hear about this happening with ambulances and things like that, but like we might not be seeing as many people admitted because there's no space, because there, there's nowhere mm-hmm. to put them. There was a, a story by the OC Register mostly talking about Huntington Beach's um, elected officials, how they are just mm-hmm. not wearing masks inside their own city hall yeah. and council chambers. But it talked about how sometimes that ambulances are being diverted to Orange County. So if you're in the south part mm-hmm. of the county, and I don't know if that's true or if that's part of you know what the the plan, but um, right. they were actually complaining mm-hmm. that that um, ambulances were trying to go to Long Beach, for example, and then crossing over the border and going to the OC. Well, COVID doesn't exist there, so, so that's the not. safest place to be. Actually. <laughs> Um, so I, I think that there, I, I think that there are probably a couple of different things happening. As as you mentioned, Alyssa, I think we have people being diverted to individual hospitals where there might be more capacity. Um, it's hard to say. I think Hayes, is it like about eight thousand hospitalized patients? I think that it's we about seven thousand. Yeah, seven thousand. So it, it's it's considerably a large enough number that it would take a lot of people to start pushing that number down to be diverted outside of the county. But one thing that we know is happening for sure is that hospitals are, are accepting fewer patients that are not COVID positive because so much of the existing resources and particularly staff needs to be directed towards, towards COVID positive patients the the ability to care for other patients, people who have less life threatening illnesses or 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 symptoms, might be being told basically to yep. stay home. And in in support of that, we have there's a, a COVID nineteen dashboard that the county publishes every day. Well, the the last update that they have is from the thirty first before before the holiday on Friday. But what that shows is. Over the course of the past month, if we go back to Thanksgiving, there were there were eight thousand. This is this is not ICU. This is overall hospital beds. There were eight thousand non-COVID patients in hospital beds. The following week, that dropped down to seventy-eight hundred, then to seventy-two hundred, then to sixty-two hundred, and as of the last full reporting week, it was down to five thousand. Mm-hmm. So fifty percent of hospital capacity in the in in the county at this point, fifty percent of hospital capacity is currently occupied by COVID-positive patients or patients who are uh, suspected of having COVID. So it's by far the highest utilization rate of hospital beds by COVID positive patients that we've had throughout this pandemic. Um, And I think that that is, if anything, 
likely leading to the decline in, right. in hospitalization rates. Uh, you were right, Scott. It's about 7,700 people who are hospitalized right now. Okay. And yeah. after the decrease of 83 yesterday, we had an increase of 153 today, which is still less than we had been seeing right. in, in previous days. But also, I mean, think about in order to actually achieve those numbers uh, of people uh, in the hospital, like we've had reports of specific hospitals turning their waiting yeah. rooms into ICU space. So there's not, there's just not room for that many people. If it, if it decreases, it might just be not a reflection of there being less need, but of of there being no space and of people who are not in need of COVID-specific care not being able to be admitted. And we see more and more, like with every day, the LA Times has new horrific reporting about like communities where outbreaks have happened. Apparently, the rate of infection among the community people who are homeless has grown by huge amounts, especially around Skid Row where the, a tent outside the Union Rescue Mission is being used as like a COVID triage facility right now. Uh, right. We also, so there have been discussions about like what we can do. The things proposed by people in city and county government have been, uh, Janice Hahn, county supervisor, remembered her glory days at the beginning of the pandemic, <laughs> which were uh, calling in the USNS Mercy, the big medical mm -hmm. ship, and she was like, let's do that again, and they were like, no, it's in Portland, and also it didn't treat anyone last time, and it's not well suited for... Did she write the letter not knowing that it was dry docked in Portland? I mean, this is what I don't... People yeah. ask the question, which is worse, that she knew that it was not, <laughs> that it was a total non-starter and suggested this, or that she didn't know... That for multiple reasons, bringing the mercy was not successful the first time and doesn't really make sense this time either. The other thing people are talking about is, is it time to use the St. Vincent Medical Center again? The hospital owned by LA Times owner Patrick Soon Shang, where we talked about in recent weeks they were shooting a medical show pilot triage and is now just sitting empty you hear hospital people say it's easier to use existing facilities than it is to set up an entirely new, uh, like mm -hmm. set up shop at a, an entirely new hospital. And they only treated, I think, 60 something people when that was open before. So Alyssa, like what have you been seeing? What have they been doing in other cities that we could actually maybe implement here? Well, there's a, I mean, there's a few things you look at both here and other, you know, you can look at like the European response too, and we can talk about mm -hmm. that too, but just, just come some very basic things that they do do in other cities, like New York City, for example, at the height of their horrible spike, which we're, we're approaching that. We're not quite there yet, mm -hmm. but we are about to... Ours might be a bit a flatter of a of a spike, but it it will probably end up being that. I don't feel like I'm gonna. I don't feel very optimistic that it won't be yeah. any worse than New York. But if you got called and you tested positive, they would say, "Hey, do you want to go to a hotel room? Do you need a place to go to isolate from your family or whatever?" And you would go get to stay in a hotel room. And if you needed any kind of assistance, whatever, there were people that could like walk your dog for you or bring you meals. Like, I don't know of 
anything like that here. Apparently, we have a program. Apparently, we also have a program in the state for farm workers who need to isolate. Apparently, we are supposed to be able to put people who are unhoused into hotel rooms. But I don't know of any situation where I haven't heard, certainly heard of anybody getting to to one of these things, maybe some unhoused people. And we'll talk about that too in a minute. But like the, the biggest problem now is you spread it within your household, everyone gets sick. And then, you know, that's five cases where it used to be one. Mm-hmm. That seems like we could do that, especially when we don't have any hotel rooms. <laughs> it seems so. like something you could even use St. Vincent for. Sure. I mean, it can, like, you, you, there's plenty make of it facilities. A hotel, right. An isolation facility. Right. So that's a big one. And that one, I think, would really help cut down. Then we have things like the shopping question that we've been talking about. Um, <sighs> it seems like now that the holidays are over, now that they could have a really good excuse to maybe shut that down or make an announcement on Monday to really scale back the capacity even more. I know that just people... have it be a hundred percent pick up. Yeah. Uh, just curbside pickup. Cause yeah. you go, if you went out in those weeks between Christmas, right before Christmas and new year's and the couple of days it rained too, there were people standing very close together under these tents or umbrellas on the sidewalk. I mean, especially if there is a more contagious variant, like you could get sick by standing next to someone in the outdoors mm-hmm. with just wearing a mask if you were waiting for like a new game for like a, an hour or something like that, right? So it's, it's or, or indoors especially. So that that's one thing, like a lever they could pull. And then we saw, we've started to see things like with, especially with grocery stores, I mean, there is no real protocols being followed. I mean, they, they're they saying that they're reducing capacity, but it's, you are going into these stores and I've gone to two different grocery stores and, and seen like, there's got to be a better way to monitor what's going on inside grocery stores and other essential places, or maybe incentivizing somehow to do delivery or curbside pickup instead, because there's still far too many people inside these places where we know that the outbreaks are mm-hmm. actually happening. I mean, we know that this is where people are getting sick. So it seems like they could at least put something into place in the new year. And then we can talk about the airports too, because we missed this opportunity to, uh, apparently this this thing was put in place by the mayor where you had to sign a thing where you came in when you were coming into LAX and you, you had to sign a form and it was mandatory and you'd be fined if you did not sign it. I don't, I mean, I can't, the language was, confusing but the the health order didn't even reflect this until after christmas Mm -hmm. first of all and second of all every single person i've talked to that's flown into lax did not see any evidence of this and they did not make an announcement where they do make announcements where they land in different cities where you i'm telling you about the protocol and what you have to do but you go to lax apparently you walk by these signboards with a qr code and you're just supposed to do it on your own so we, You're supposed to do the QR code and then and then okay. Wow. I tell you, I see a QR code. I'm scanning it. Yeah, I mean, no, so, no matter you know, what, like... I'm gonna stop. I've just been on a flight with my mask for six hours. I'm like, wait a second, guy. Wait a second, everyone around me. I'm going to stop and get this code. Try and stop me. So I, we've missed. I, need to. I think like like those are just a few opportunities that we have really missed to to try in any way to yeah. to fix this and now but maybe it's too late maybe we could still try to do these things but the the thing is like the 
the problem the problem with the mindset of of it's too late is like I, I feel like that's how we ended up in this mess in the first place, right? Like it's, I mean, it's like the the cliche about the best time to plant a tree is a hundred years ago. The second mm-hmm. best time is now, right? Like we just like in the summer we didn't know what the shape of the rest of the COVID pandemic was going to be. It's January of 2021 now, and we still don't know what the shape of the rest of the pandemic is going to be. We know there's a vaccine. We know that we have expectations of how effective it's going to be, but we have no idea what the timeline for actually getting that to a large enough share of the population to keep people safe is going to be. We should be acting as though... It, it, you know, as, as though there are things that we can do to keep people safe in the medium term and that it is and that it is a good idea to be doing those things. And I feel like what we've seen is the government in Los Angeles has really stagnated in its ability uh, and in its willingness, frankly, to do things to keep people safe. I, I read a lot this this past week in, in newspapers in the LA Times and in the New York Times where they had a a good look at the COVID pandemic in East Los Angeles Mm -hmm. uh, in particular. There's a lot of language about about politicians pleading and literally begging people to stay home. But in, in my view, what we've really seen is a government that has failed to adapt throughout the course of this pandemic there's there's not isolation isolation measures that have been shown to work in places that have been particularly hard hit there's not mandatory quarantining it's it's perplexing i don't i don't understand how we could have seen all of the developments that we've seen over the course of the last year have a wealth of information really at this point to draw from in terms of interventions that can save lives and just and just opt not to to follow models that have been set elsewhere. Yeah, it's, and by, if, by saying yeah, it's ahead. too late, I meant oh, sorry. What I what I was saying is it too late. I was saying like to catch this holiday behavior, I guess, which may oh, sure. change yeah. now. You know, I feel yeah. like people were shopping and gathering and and flying, and maybe maybe that's that part is is past now, and we can try something new. But well, Scott um, I, said the malls are. Are full. Yeah, they're packed. I mean, they're- yeah, I mean, they're they're absolutely packed, even even after the holidays, and it's and I get it. Like I I on on one level, I totally get it because when you're trying to make an independent uh, decision about what is safe or not safe behavior, first of all, you see people doing things, and it gives you a sense of like, okay, this is this is this must be normal because people are doing it, and I don't see them dropping dead in front of me. And second of all. You have this sense that if it were really unsafe, somebody would be telling me I cannot do this instead of saying, please stay home. But also it's important for us to keep these businesses going. So also please patronize these right. businesses. And I think that that's the, the part about protecting the vulnerable population here is the, some of the stories, those big national stories were like, oh, we actually somehow averted this in the summer, but we should have had these things in place because we know that we have such extreme mm-hmm. poverty. We know that we have such a large homeless population, for example. And that too was like a, a real, 
victory that they were claiming was like, oh, we're, we've managed to keep the, the homeless population relatively safe this whole time. We don't know how we did it. Oh, but look what happened. We had 60 cases a week all year. And now the last two weeks, we've had 500 cases all of a sudden. And that, who knows if that's even the extent of what's being reported. So now we have mm-hmm. these major outbreaks happening at shelters and in other types of facilities. And they didn't actually know how to keep people safe. And they were pretending like, oh, we got yeah. lucky or they want to talk about sprawl again. Or now the new right. hot way to explain it is that sprawl is actually more dangerous right. because you drive in your car to see people or something. I don't know. Because <laughs> you're isolated. Yeah. And there, there's a lot of, there was a good article by a, a variety of, of it had a, a couple of different writers on the byline and O'Ronlin and Sumia Karlamangla were, were among them this past week or the week before. It was a very good article, but the, the, the editorial framing was that Los Angeles was uniquely vulnerable, which I, I mean, I, I take some exception to because, well, because frankly, it's not true. Like we, we, we've seen a lot of places be vulnerable over the course of the pandemic. And I, I'm not really convinced that there's, uh, that there's something that made this inevitable in Los Angeles any more than it did in other large cities throughout the country or, or the world. I think what we've seen is, um, is, is failures of, of various natures and they're ongoing. And I, I think that the article itself actually covered that reasonably well. But that, that is a framing that I think we should be judicious about not, not accepting as, as Angelinos. Yeah, they mentioned um, the policy failure, like the, the messaging being confusing and all that stuff as part of the, the reason that L.A. was hit hard, but also overcrowding, which we do have more of here than lots of other places around the, around the country. Speaking of people violating policies, should we move on to the the revolt in the district attorney's office? Uh, the the assistant district attorneys are revolting. <laughs> they so we've talked a lot about how the new DA George Gascon, who replaced Jackie Lacey, implemented sweeping new reform, saying that his office was no longer going to use sentencing enhancements to elongate sentences for people charged criminally, was no longer going to seek the death penalty, was going to uh, try and get previous death penalty resentenced, all kinds of like really landmark reforms from the DA's office. And this week, his staff, the ADDA, the Assistant Deputy District Attorney's Union, filed lawsuits Mm -hmm. in the L.A. Superior Court to try and stop these reforms from happening, specifically to get a temporary restraining order to shut it all down. And George Gascon has been going around talking about this. He was on Councilman Mike Bonin's podcast today, What's Next Los Angeles. I haven't Mm -hmm. had time to, to listen to it yet, but I'm sure that's really interesting. But I want to talk a little about the context of the ADDA with George Gascon. So during the election when Gascon was running against Jackie Lacey, we talked a lot about how law enforcement in the form of the police and the sheriff's deputies were very supportive of Jackie Lacey, the incumbent. But the deputy district attorneys were also very hardcore supportive of Lacey. They fought George Gascon becoming their boss really, really hard. 
And yep. the people that you would see out uh, stumping for Lacey most often were leadership of the ADDA, specifically a woman named Michelle Hannessy, who was the ADDA president. She's a prosecutor, and she is constantly going on uh, the radio show of our old friends, John and Ken. John co-built and Ken Shampoo on KFI. <laughs> Wait, is that their the, real names? I, I didn't know they uh, had uh, last names. Ken's last name is spelled C H I A M P O U, and I and I don't know exactly how it's pronounced, but I will always call him Ken, Ken Shampoo. Ken Shampoo. And she went on the show just a few days ago to talk about this lawsuit and exactly why they're bringing this suit uh, to to stop what George Gascon is doing. So I'm, I'll I'll play a clip of that. There's a guest host. Don't freak out when you don't hear John and Ken. There is a, a, a guest host for this episode. Uh, I think her name is Jane Wells. So here's a clip from, uh, from the John and Ken show this week. Give me an example of the sort of thing that you would not be able to do now because of his directive. Well, the, the three, three strikes is a big one. The three strikes law is mandatory. It says prior strike offenses shall be filed. The word shall under the law means you got to do it. It's not your choice. And the discretion a prosecutor has, and a prosecutor and the lead prosecutor has a great deal of discretion, and you can evaluate charges on a case-by-case basis. But what you cannot do is just say, I'm not going to follow this law at all. And the three strikes law was enacted by the voters and through the legislative process, and multiple court opinions have held it to be constitutional and have held that the language says it's not optional, it's mandatory, you must file those strikes when they're there. So that is the case that the ADDA is making, that they have to use these sentencing enhancements, like three strikes, to put people in jail for longer if those enhancements are available to them. And what they have been, what they said in the lawsuit, what, uh, what Michelle Hennessy said in this interview, was they can e- they're in this place now where they can either disobey their boss and potentially get fired, or obey their boss and break the law, they're saying, and get potentially disbarred. So it's it's them saying that it's not an ideological thing, that it's much more about like the laws of the state and they feel they're duty-bound to do things a certain way and George Gascon is trying to compel them to do things differently. But the ADDA, just like the LA Police Protective League, just like ALADS, the Deputy Sheriff's Union – is an extremely ideological organization. And they all advocate for the same stuff, which is more Mm. freedom to prosecute people for more crimes with longer sentences. Uh, They're extremely consistent on that issue. The, The example that she uses is three strikes. But three strikes is something that has not been enforced unilaterally since it was passed in the 90s. There's like a huge amount of discretion over how you're like allowed to, to try these cases. And a good example is Steve Cooley, who was the DA, the L.A. County DA before Jackie Lacey, did not charge uh, nonviolent felonies as a third strike, which meant you could get 25 to life for a nonviolent crime he wouldn't do that steve cooley is not a paragon of compassion 
Steve Cooley is right now calling George no. Gascon George Soros. He is a Republican. He's a psycho. <laughs> but even he yeah. would not charge three strikes cases up to what he was allowed to do because prosecutors have enormous discretion in these cases, right? It's, it is. I mean, it, it's the circumstances are actually, we, I think we've talked about it in, uh, in terms of the election of Alex Villanueva as sheriff before, but maybe not in this context. It's, it's actually rather similar to, to Jim McDonald's election being as as he was when he was elected an outsider and somebody who came in focusing the bulk of his reforms on the right. rank and file sworn officers as opposed to on the the lieutenancy and the brass etc um the the similarity is it's easy to see as we did with that sheriff's uh election a situation where the ADDA, the, the the union for our assistant district attorneys, and um, and various other law enforcement cronies line up basically against Gascon the way that they did on his initial election, but are they're already using this as um, as a striking pad to 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 whip up fervor against Gascon's reforms before they can become actually enacted. So, like, the way the ADDA works in their advocacy is when you try to make the criminal justice system more lenient, less harsh in its sentencing, they say, this is the law, voters pass these things, we're duty-bound to, to do this stuff. And when you have laws passed like Prop 47 which made sentences more lenient, even though that that is the law, that is something that voters passed, Mm -hmm. they say, well, now you've made the state more dangerous. You've put more Mm -hmm. criminals out there committing crimes. Like, it is a very ideological approach. I'm going to play another clip from John and Ken in the primary. Now John and Ken are hosting this episode, and this is how the same person, Michelle Hannessy, talks about George Gascon's uh, reluctance to use to, to seek the death penalty. Yeah. And, and this is every 229 people currently on death row who were sentenced in L.A. County. That's all of them through time that are alive? Can we talk about who those people are? Because that includes yeah. Lawrence Bittaker, a serial killer, Rodney Alcala, a serial killer, Ivan Hill, a serial killer, the Grim Sweeper, a serial killer, Chester yeah. Turner, Timothy McGee, all serial killers. He's out of his mind. And I, apparently Mike Bonin stood behind them, John. Well, we know Bonin's out of his mind. So that's just a little taste of where these guys are coming from. John and Ken, Trump supporters in the 2020 election. It's right there in their voter guide, which you can search online. This is where Michelle Hannessy is going to talk up the need for the death penalty, that these are people who deserve to be killed by the state. Whether or not I mean, Gavin Newsom, the governor, said that he will not be allowing any executions to take place and Michelle Hannessy wrote a letter saying that this might not be within his right to stop that from happening because it was legally allowed to do so. Interesting. I, I just I, I feel like you you hear the argument being made that they are just trying to uphold their oaths of office, uh, the the assistant district attorneys. Mm-hmm. That is, but how? Yeah, how could you possibly? not see it as ideological when you have the same individuals going 
to to various publications, in particular the local Fox outlet, in order to 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 say like, look at this specific yeah. story doing doing basically the the classic tough on crime story where they're saying now that Gascon is here, he's not trying to do sentencing enhancements in this particular case. And he is ruining the lives of, of the victim of a specific crime's survivors because they are not getting the justice that they want to see, which in this case is an enhanced sentence of like life without parole mm-hmm. as opposed to up to and including life. This is it is purely ideological. They're they're seeking out friendly media voices so that they can so that they can intentionally the way that Michael Moore, LAPD chief, the way that Alex Villanueva, uh, Los Angeles sheriff, have before them gone to the media in order to say everything is becoming less safe because of Black Lives Matter, because of the reformers that they support, including George Gascon. And really trying actively to convert the the popular leftist uprisings of 2020 into a, a clear cut reactionary backlash in 2021. Exactly, and making it seem like she she talks about all the serial killers on death row as if they're going to be released back into mm-hmm. society when all that will happen is they will be resentenced to life without parole. Mm-hmm where you can't have a situation where if a new governor takes over who is more amenable to the death penalty, he can have mass executions. He could execute so many people that have been on death row for decades. That's what uh, George Gascon is trying to avoid because he doesn't agree with the death penalty. Another thing that has been totally up to a DA's discretion whether to seek for so long in California, no San Francisco district attorney has sought the death penalty since 1995. Whereas we hear Jackie Lacey uh, brought it 22 times in her eight-year tenure. Including uh, on her way out the door, right? Yes. Yeah. And so the angle here, I think, for prosecutors, you're like, why do they care so much about being able to sentence people for longer? And I think it, it just – it's the simplest version is that it makes their job much easier to be able to wield really outsized sentences to get uh, plea bargains. The, the like the less of a uh, a hammer you can bring down on on a defendant, the more likely it is that you have to go to trial. And prosecutors don't want to have an excess number of trials that they have to deal with. This is nationwide the trend of mm-hmm. I think something like three percent of criminal cases nationally end up going to trial because they almost all get pled out. Uh, and that just makes it more difficult for them to do if they don't have sentencing enhancements. Even um, the like, even the extremely skewed version of our criminal our criminal justice system that gets uh, broadcast to people in in mass media, TV, and and movies. I, I feel like people have a relatively good sense of this already. Just you know, in the in the movies that you watch about police and and about the legal system you can you can see fictionalized versions of how this plays out and it's been it's been a case in in particular in minority communities in in America forever that you have circumstances where people can't afford 
uh, defense counsel, people can't afford whatever it is that might allow them to make the case for their own freedom in a substantial way compared to mm -hmm. the resources yeah. of the state. And they're, they basically end up in a situation where the prosecutor has, like, your, like Hayes said, this incredible hammer that they can bring down. They can say, you, you can gamble on your entire life. The stakes are that high. You can gamble and, and you are, if you lose, whether or not you did this, you're in jail without parole for the rest of your life. Uh, you can take that chance. Maybe it's 50-50 that you walk away. Maybe it's 50-50 that you're sitting in a jail cell forever. Or you can accept this plea bargain and get a reduced sentence. You get maybe some of your life back. And if even if you didn't actually do the thing that you're accused of, that might be something that you get pressured into. This is this is the the real power that prosecutors wield over over anybody in this country, and and they they enjoy having that power. It makes them very it makes them very capable of drawing out drawing out cases to the conclusion that they want. So what's happening in this case? So earlier this week, the ADDA brought the suit to the LA Superior Court. And something really interesting happened. I read about this in Witness LA, Celeste Freeman's blog. So the ADDA's request for a temporary restraining order was heard on Wednesday morning by Judge David Cowan at the Superior Court. And he kind of signaled to them that he was not really amenable to issuing this restraining order. But he gave them an out, which is he basically said, you... The ADDA can either withdraw this case altogether and just not bring it, or I'm just going to reject the stay. And if he rejected the stay, that would be an actual ruling against the ADDA, which they didn't want. So they did voluntary, voluntarily withdraw their case, and then they brought another one to a different judge seeking a very similar thing, a, uh, a a mandate to bar some of the reforms. And guess who their new judge is? Who? James Chalfant. No. Who is curr oh, currently great. busy potentially removing the ban on outdoor dining. And based on Michelle Hannessy was asked about this in her John and Ken interview this week, and she seemed very upbeat about James Chalfant and their chances of getting a good ruling from wow. him. Wow. So there's a lot at stake in the Superior Court right now for whether George Gascon will be able to implement the reforms that he's that he has laid out, something that we'll keep an eye on. There's a hearing on February 2nd there. Let's close with a very uh, a fun segment, sad segment, kind of fun. Let's do a place and thank you for a place that over the last 24 hours the, 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 this weekend – has been talked about and memorialized quite a lot. Uh, Alyssa, this is a place where you said you've patronized more than any other. I think I've probably eaten more meals there than any other place in LA. It's definitely possible. And it's the last place I ate before the restaurants closed in March, which is wow. very symbolic, very interesting. Now, let me ask you, what is the name of this place? Because no one gets the name right, first of all. So what I almost corrected about? it in when you wrote it in our agenda. I always call it the one the 101 coffee shop. That is the correct name. Okay. Nobody calls it that. Everybody what? calls it the 101 cafe 
Mm-hmm. Cafe 101. <laughs> Cafe 101, I hear a lot. Yes. Or just the Cafe 101. 101 I've, I some people call it the 101. That's what I mean. I've, I've called it that. This is an interesting. Uh, the fact that it's been floating around Twitter is very interesting because they haven't actually confirmed that it's closing. So I'm wondering if we're going to get into a same uh, scenario as Nick's Cafe, where we all say it's closing and then they come up and say, actually, we're not closing it. That's um, what I thought. <laughs> I was really skeptical. Yeah. <laughs> and and I reached out to some people who seemed like they knew and they talked to some people and apparently it is closing. All right. So let's we'll we'll do a, a memorial, you know, tentative m- memorial. But I think this is it's an interesting place because it's a very it's a it's typical of a place that people develop memories of it without really knowing where those memories come from and it's yeah. like the it's the typical place where if you ask people about it they have very fond memories but then once you dig a little bit deeper it's actually not the place that you thought it was yeah. <laughs> this whole time so let's go back to the very beginning if you can imagine the stretch of franklin that it's on right before you do get to the 101 cafe it was built before the 101 was there um, as a hotel and that was when like hollywood tower was built across the street this is the 20s so a very grand address at the time there was a lot of celebrities that lived in the apartment buildings around there and then also would come stay in this hotel which was very close to all the studios and all the places in Hollywood. I think the name of it was, what was the name of it originally? Anyway, it was a, oh, the Hollywood Franklin Hotel. Okay. So Mm -hmm. they, it was bought by the Adler family in the 19, in 1948. And they were really the ones who, you know, made it somewhat of a destination. You know, it was just like a, a typical coffee shop in the bottom corner there. But it's it made they made the hotel like kind of a cool hip place to stay. But it was still like the tradi- the actual hip. There was a huge makeover that made it like retro hip place. And if you'll remember, I just remember this was like in maybe 2011. There was a big fight about whether that mural on the building could stay. Do you know what the mural says that's on the building? Last... Coffee before the 101? Cappuccino. Last cappuccino. (laughs) And the 101's like right there. So that's why it's so funny. But so there was a big battle. The mural got to stay. But then they, so it was remade in this like retro version of what you thought it looked like before, but it was actually just a Best Western that was not very hip or cool or anything during its most recent iteration. So the coffee shop itself was actually for a while a typical coffee shop, but it was not, I don't, I, I didn't go there before this time. In 19, 1995, I believe, the restaurant itself was changed management from the Adlers to this restaurateur, Susan Fine Moore, who kind of wanted to make it the cooler version of what it was intended to be. And gave it kind of a light makeover, but making it look like, again, a retro version of what it never really was. <laughs> it was just kind of yeah. like the, the same thing. And and did, you know, fancy up the menu and made it a place, again, that celebrities started going. So you do have a lot of screenwriters and actors going to eat there. And this is during the period where Swingers was filmed there. And I found it very funny that so many people... You know, you know the famous scene where like Vince Vaughn is making eyes with the woman, and he thinks that she's like flirting with him, but her baby mm-hmm. is actually in the opposite. I mean, that's like the best scene right in those banquets. But that's actually not the restaurant that's there now. 
That restaurant was called the Hollywood Hills Coffee Shop. And I found it so funny that people were like, oh, 101 Cafe, I love you so much. But the, And posting pictures from swingers. That's not the same restaurant at all. And that was changed. <laughs> that restaurant was changed in 2001. That restaurant actually moved over to Vermont, where that place, the study that bar is, it mo- okay. relocated there, didn't do well and ended up closing. So that was actually the... The restaurant of swingers. So R.I.P. to that one a few years ago before this, uh, the pandemic even happened. So in 2001, what happened was um, the restaurant itself changed hands again. And now we have some very fancy and famous owners um, who took it over. And they are Warner Ebbing. Ebbing? Warner Ebbing. Ebbing and Brandon Boudet. Mm-hmm. And these are restaurateurs. Brandon Boudet is a chef. Warner is the restaurateur, um, you know, visionary, mm-hmm. style, design person. Um, and this was their first place yes. of what became a little empire, right? And I guess they met when they were waiters at Swingers. Is that, or they had worked at Swingers together at the same time? Like he was a waiter and, and the other guy was a chef there or something? That's, That's a fun narrative. I think they met because uh, I, I think Brandon Boudet had been a up and coming apprentice chef. He worked for Paul Prudhomme and had worked in Vegas at some of those places yeah. for a while. And maybe he had been doing some executive chef work for Swingers. And I think Warner Ebbing, I'm guessing, was someone who had access to a bunch of money to be able to do what he did with the 101 and a bunch of other places, which was buy it and really renovate it to a specific style. Yeah. And again, what we have is, and and we should note the other places they own and bought around the same time, I think a, a it was first, but it was it was pretty closely mm-hmm. after it was Dominic's, which is in Dominic's, West Hollywood. Dominic's, yeah, exactly Hollywood, West Hollywood, Beverly Hills. It's around border, there. Yeah. It's West Hollywood. And then Little Dom's, which everyone knows in Los Feliz. Those two places were kind of like, uh, Dominic's was a very famous place for a very long time that they just kind of like made, you know, glammed it up. And then Little Dom's, I think, is another one of those places that everybody's like, oh, it's been around forever, but it actually mm-hmm. hasn't. <laughs> It just did a really good job making it look like it has. Yeah. But the interesting thing about about these guys, I think, was that they really went for this gut renovation of the space that made it look, uh, you know, they put the popcorn ceilings like back in. They put the banquettes back in with like the, you know, the, they changed. I think it maybe it was red before. and They made it like this nice rich brown. They have these beautiful like formica countertops and with the wood veneer you know the jukebox all the stuff they put up all these photos of people family photos from people in the 70s it all just looks so like spot on like it's been there you know in this form since the 1950s but it actually has not um and the food is Great. I would say it's like a very, it was a sophisticated uh, diner menu. So it had like a lot of vegan options. Yeah. It had this black and white shake that I found out was actually on the original menu um, mm. with like an espresso vanilla shape that had, shake that had a lot of like, they put like the espresso grounds like in it. So it'd be really gritty and like 
awesome for a hangover if you needed to go in there and just like get over it. It's like the fat, sugar, and caffeine that you needed like instantly in your body. And then I think like they also, they just, their hours were really good. And a lot of people would use it to get like that, like they had before when the, during, you know, the, the swingers era, when people mm-hmm. would just go work there and take meetings there. So you still would see a lot of celebrities or a lot of artists or people there like eating with their families. And um, it was funny when I... Who's the most exciting person that you saw there? Well, living there, you know, John Favreau lived in the apartment building that was on the corner of where when I first moved to LA, that apartment building was on the corner. And so when I moved here, I basically moved to into the swingers in real life because my weekends would consist of seeing John Favreau at the 101 coffee shop and seeing Vince Vaughn at La Poubelle. And I was like, do these people just like, this is all the only places they go in LA and they just like stay in these like little characters all the time. So that was like a constant of just seeing the same, those same guys there, which was kind of funny. But it was funny, the roommates that I moved in with were very like adamant about continuing to go to the Hollywood Hills coffee shop because they Uh were so mad that they had left that spot. So quite often at the beginning, we would go to Vermont and go to that restaurant instead. And then it took a while for me to warm up to the 101. But it was just so convenient and always quite easy to get into, like not like a sceny breakfast or brunch or anything. Actually great to go on their like dinner special nights. They'd have like meatloaf and stuff. So, but the interesting thing, again, we'll talk about these restaurateurs is they, we don't really know if it's closing yet. I guess we'll find out for sure, but they've meanwhile been expanding their empire during the pandemic. So I don't know, Hayes, you dug into this a little bit more. Maybe you want to talk about their, their thwarted plans for some other places. (laughs) Well, yeah, these two guys, Warner Ebbing and Brandon Boudet, they have well, this is not the first time we've had a, a, like an abrupt closure of one of their properties. This is actually uh, like apparently this has been in the works for a couple months that they were planning on 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 closing the 101. But if you look back at their other places, they shut down Dominic's, which had been operating for like 67 years with like a few weeks notice they shut down so they owned also tom bergen's which they bought in 2011 the very famous irish bar near like wilshire and fairfax uh and they did a big they got reno there making it more sophisticated that whole thing they ended up owning tom bergen's for only about a year before they decided it wasn't financially viable they sold it to an actor whose neighborhood bar it had been who had it for the next seven years uh Little Dom's also like they they've only owned that since 2008 but of their four restaurants now three have closed on like relatively short notice and I saw some social media discussion about how it seemed like with Tom Bergen's for example it was almost a flip where like they got out of that with ended up making a lot of money despite the fact that they never really operated it as as a restaurant. And, yeah, at the same time, so they're not getting out of the restaurant business entirely. They are opening up Little Dom Seafood in Carpinteria, which was their backup plan. Warner Ebbing lives in Carpinteria and has for a while. Uh, But that was their backup plan. They were going to open it in Ojai, but ran into trouble 
with Ojai Brass. I saw a New York Times article about Ojai where Warner Ebbink was expressing frustration with the fact that, like, he said, Ojai in general is difficult for us. They don't allow you to increase traffic coming in or out of town, not by one car. That's how they keep it small. <laughs> and so I, I've been hearing different things about why the 101 closed. Apparently, it's mostly a landlord issue, and they want to get them out for some reason. But if precedent is any example with uh, these restaurateurs, there is an opportunity for someone to maybe come in and buy it. One of the many, many incredibly rich people that has a nostalgic relationship with this place, um, which even I do. I mean, like, I was never in the UCB, but I had so many friends who were, and you'd go to a show, and then you'd go to the 101 afterwards, and you'd see, like, all these comedy people there. I saw Ben Folds there once. That was really exciting. I like that bar when they opened that up a few years ago. Mini bar. Mini bar. The That's little... a great bar, yep, actually. Yep. Hopefully that stays in some yeah. form. Uh, so I, I think there may be a chance for it to be taken over, but if it's the landlord, if it's like the the property owners that want to get rid of a restaurant space there, that would suggest that that opportunity is not there. That doesn't make as much sense to me as the fact that like they just decided to move on from this business for one reason or another. But I guess we'll we'll find out more over the next few weeks. So the Adler's, the Adler's two sons, I think. They're still around. I'll have to look. But um, as, is this the Adlers, the music Adlers? Uh, they're like Lou Adler. No, these are Mel and Bernie Adler. Okay. Just their parents just had owned the owned the hotel, and now the the brothers own it. And yeah, maybe they were. Let's see. They've got to be in their late eighties if they're still around. So but, they still own um, the building. They still own the hotel, I believe. So maybe they're trying to get out of the hotel business and 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 turn over the property to, to something else. So that could be what's happening. We'll find out soon. Thank you for listening to LA Podcast. Thank you, Scott, for gutting it out. I could see Scott flagging so hard over that last <laughs> segment. Thank you, Brian Holmes, for producing the show. Thank you for subscribing to our Patreon. We have a great episode of 30 Miles Zone coming out this week about double indemnity for our, our noir, noir Year's Eve celebration. Uh, and so you can find that at patreon.com slash LA podcast. And we'll be back next week with another show. Bye.